0: Welcome to The Limitless, the podcast between this time you'll be listening to Kate Ledegar talking to Alison McDowell with your host, Jason Horsley, less audible than usual. a fly on the wall at a very interesting, stimulating conversation in two parts.
1: That's how I live. I'll
2: take what you give. Cause I love. Um Alison, I just I listened to your well most of the interview with Catherine Austin Fitz. I was so excited about that because um I mean, just the, the two of you have um you each have su- such an interesting uh and compelling uh way of putting together details and finding patterns and explaining that and to have both you both come together and talk about that it was very um i think hopefully useful in terms of orienting perhaps orienting more people to understand uh where you're each coming from and be able to not just dismiss it out of hand because it just sounds too crazy right <laughs> and that's what that's what i'm getting that's what i i i have um i have a community of uh i've got a couple communities i have a community of people who are um i you know i it you can use the c word right who have more of a who've had an ear to conspiracy in their lifetime it would haven't necessarily been um cooking it together into a big meal themselves, but who've been having an ear on what people say could be related to something that has to do with an intentional form of control that affects us. And yes, so I have that group and that group has been growing because um, I, I have two young boys in school in Maine, And they're affected by um, the new laws for vaccination because I don't have them fully vaccinated or much vaccinated for various reasons. Um, And so they can't go to school in the fall. They can't go to any school in the fall. They can't even go to an online school in Maine in the fall if it involves any on-site meeting. Um, So in a way this has been, um this has been kind of a kick in the butt for me because I've been doing half-assed homeschooling for a long time and um I've been interested in people like John Taylor Gatto and just this idea things that have been brewing in my own head and I I have an education background myself and an academic background I have always thrived in academia and thinky stuff and you know but I'm so, I, I have a hyper realization that, hyper awareness that that's not for everybody and school is not mostly about that. And so, you know, so I've had the experience recently of shifting away from school, sadly, because I think the one thing that school does give to kids, especially public school, is um, connection to the community. And connection to families that you would not normally be connected with necessarily, which I think is extremely important um, for weaving together a community and not having your own, not having just your own little soft city that you're dwelling in all the time and that you're having your children dwelling in all the time. But, you know, bye bye to that mostly. However, the interesting thing that's been happening is as, there've been all these various restrictions that have um, affected people who, who, who've, I think previously been separated, you know, religious people, um, people who are big Trump supporters, people who are, who used to be big liberals and who are now, you know, and this would be myself, who a year or more ago started saying, wait a minute, this narrative, NPR isn't really talking about the things that are important to me. And in fact, they're talking about things that I am, you know, vehemently disagree with. I've been finding these communities and they've been united on uh, coming together around this past year and its many issues. So, So that's been that's been a positive thing. So I've lost, I've been losing a community, but I've been finding one too. And you know, that's how I found you as well. And that, yeah, I found you through uh, the greater reset just happening to listen to someone her name. I forget her name, but she mentioned Jillian, you on the, maybe. what's that?
1: Julianne and Tulsa. Yes. Yeah. She
2: yeah. mentioned you in the greater reset. And I thought, huh, that sounds interesting. And so you know, but just little a little link like that. But then I found other people who, oh yes, I've been listening to Alison McDowell already. So there, there's this new community of people who has kind of been, it's like, I don't know, gassed out of the woodwork or something. And we're all crawling out and coming together and saying, yeah, yeah, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem right. And you know to Jason as well. This is my connection with him. That was through um, my interest in what James Howard Kunstler has to say, primarily about built environment issues. And so, listening, then I listened to Jason on a Kunstler cast, and I thought, yeah, that sounds interesting. And then you know, got connected with him, and it's been a very interesting coming together of um, people who have, as you said yourself, and I thought this was very interesting. You said the people who you're finding are listening to you are the holistic health community. Okay, ding, ding, that's me partly. People of faith, um, that's me, although it's my own wacky kind of faith and artists. And that's me too, I'm a visual artist. So, you know, that's, I think, what what there is in common is a shared vision that's beyond what is offered to everybody as authority, right? There's a different authority that everybody in these groups and some other groups too are looking to, you know, and this is permaculture crowd and, you know, so they get the authority thing and they say, well, you know, that doesn't square with all these other things that I really feel. Are are real. So anyway, that's just a long-winded way of saying how um, how I came to find you and why you resonate and why Jason resonates. And but I, you know, I think it's I think it's a little bit rare the people who feel and think like this. Not completely, however, um, for me the question is how to communicate this. And this is something that you were talking to Catherine Austin Fitz about yesterday as well.
1: Well, and I think we model it. I mean, that's like a different way of being or to experiment, to be open to experimenting with different, you know, to breaking out of these boxes. And um, because we're given sort of these, you know, that's what the education system does. It sort of, it gives you a pathway and it and increasingly there are rubrics and micro rubrics and things like these are all the boxes to tick. And, and so it gives you this framework that you live in. Right. And then you have the media culture that, you know, that people inhabit and you have these social norms. And then when it when you realize how that so much of it is flawed or not what you thought, not what you were taught, then you you back out and you try to find other ways. And and to me, um, you know some of what we've been doing is like the, the dandelion you know the beautiful dandelions we sent and the is to like how do we remake culture and again not in a way that's appropriative but how do we construct something and then validate that right that we can collectively build something else because people i don't think it's reform i don't think it's a i don't think this thing is a reformable thing at this point i think it has to be built and it has to be built in a collective way i think a lot of people get frustrated with me because they're like allison well what's the answer i'm like well if i sat here and told you that i had the answer that would be fly in the face of everything i've just said so you don't mm-hmm. i have ideas but it's this it's a collaborative process that you you try right i mean there's paintings right i mean you'll, you'll you'll you 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 do it and then you might rework it or you might have a theme and redo it in a different way or you might drop it all together and do something completely different in, in its process. And um, I don't know, it sounds like maybe we're I was always good in school. Like that's the thing, like unlearning it. Like I was the person like, you know, like that was my identity that I was good at that thing. Right. And then you realize, oh gosh, I was good at that thing. <laughs> wow. What does that say about me? And then um, so learning to unlearn that part, but in some ways that's been the most exciting thing of this year. It was so much mourning for like the first six or eight months. Cause mm. I knew exactly the bigger scope, right? I knew exactly where this, where they wanted this to go. Not that it will ultimately go there, but I I knew that. And that was very heavy because no one else, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Very few people. And even most of the education people I had to leave. And, um, But the rebuilding, now it's starting to rebuild. Like now I feel like we're getting into the re-knitting together phase, mm-hmm. which is quite beautiful and a gift. So, you know. I guess if I was gonna pick a way to spend my 50s, this wasn't exactly what I thought I would be doing, but like I wake up and I always have interesting things to think about and interesting people to talk to. That's pretty great.
2: That I'm thinking about what you're um, saying about the process, you know, having it be a, um, having it be a process. And I think people who are more aware of (laughs) I'm very, I'm very attracted to um, you. Are you familiar with the architect Christopher Alexander, Christopher Mm -hmm. Alexander? Well, he is um, somebody who's kind of flies in the face of modernism and um, talks about generative design, generative design as a process of creating something in more of the way that a plant grows, right? So you are being very aware of the inputs and very aware of the environment and human factors and everything, and you are also um, you are adapting at every moment that you're creating this, or you're at least willing to adapt. And I think that um, I think that one of the central problems. Or one of the central reasons why we are where we are now has to do with um, impositional impositional approach. So you know, you talk, you mentioned tailorism, management, efficiency, people who have an idea and then work to impose that idea. And, you know, and that also has to do with extractive economy, right? So you see something and you label it as a resource and you say, okay, I'm going to take that and I'm going to do this with it. And it's, there. there's some tendency, and I don't know if it's just tendency in, I, I mean, maybe in all humans, a tendency to Want to want to impose a solution on things when we have an idea. We want to meddle with stuff. And I remember when I um, when I graduated, my advisor professor Berkeley Hendricks. He's a painter. He might have been from Philadelphia actually at some point too. Mm-hmm. But he um, he asked me, you know, so what are you going to do? How are you going to keep painting now? And I said, oh, I can't keep paint. You know, that's selfish. I want to revolutionize public housing. That's what I want to do. Right? And looking back, and of course, I've never revolutionized public (laughs) housing to date anyway. But um, looking at that and examining that tendency in myself, it's like, yeah, I I want to fix this. I'm going to fix this. And that's not much different than, I'm going to fix these, uh, you know, Cherokee by taking their children and putting them in schools so they become part of the modern culture and that they are freed from their uncivilized, their primitive background, right? I'm gonna fix them, you know? And then I'm gonna go and fix some other people some other tribe living somewhere and bring them free laptops yeah right and i mean there it's it's all it's all related and i can feel it in myself and i feel it as a as a drive and as a um something that i think of as being very good i want to help you know i have this i've got these things and i like these things and those people don't have these things that's not fair. I want to bring that. I want to help. But there's something there. It is imperialist, as you know. You've made that connection very much too. The it's an imperialist mindset that is wanting to wanting to remake the world in your image. Right? You have a sense of who you are and where you are and just accepting that that's the best possible thing, perhaps, or I don't know, just how reality should be and wanting to impose that, but thinking of it as, this is a good thing. And I think that this is what drives, this is what drives so many people now to to advance what you see, and somebody like Catherine Austin Fitz sees and what somebody like Mike Eden sees namely Wolf sees as going to really bad places like ah, 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 you know danger danger, watch out, they do not see the danger danger they see you know, oh, this is good, this is helping the poor this is this is solving the problems that are you know overconsumption have led to. And so we can bring a green reset or we can bring the free laptops. And they don't go any further. They don't go any further. It's, it, you know, it's, uh, this is every, people are good except for some bad people who are selfish. And, you know, we can we can see those bad corporate people here and there, but we're good and we're doing the good thing. And I, I think, I don't know, perhaps it's an inability or a disinclination to look for a larger pattern, but also a disinclination to listen to somebody who's seeing a larger pattern, such as yourself, and to dismiss them as paranoid or crazy. What do you, do you have any thought about that? idea about the people who are who see themselves as doing good and don't want to don't want to don't want to uh think that reality is any different than the one that they are operating in
1: well i i mean i think different people they come to things at different stages of their life right like I, you know, I think some people might presume maybe I had a certain, like my, my background was, you know, sort of first generation college, corporate suburbia, aspirational, like step up culture, right? Like that, that's sort of what I came out of and, you know, always thinking that we were, you know, going to be, you know, we were good people, you know, and that sort of thing. And to, to be able to um, interrogate those structures, like my, you know, I've mentioned before, my father was a Procter & Gamble executive. He worked in grocery stores all through high school. And then he scored this job that was his ticket, you know, to this suburban, this, you know, what we're told is, is this, and, you know, materially, you know, in in many ways, it was very comfortable, but I never, it never occurred to me in high school. No one told me in school, like, hey, you know, that coffee, have you ever thought of where it comes from or like geopolitically what's going on in Latin America and like what our interests are down there and like how that, no, no. No one is in a position of saying, you know, you should, you know, because, you know, you're a kid, right? And you never even like the high school history classes never got beyond the Vietnam War. Like we never are meant to know to connect the through line because then you become implicated in the system. You know, and I and I have a friend who here in Philadelphia and who's a you know, a parent I met through the school district stuff. And she said, you know, in our community, it's kind of considered rude to bring up like unpack dirty laundry if you don't have any way out like it's sort of unseemly just you know like if you just come and throw all this stuff on the floor and say look at it and you don't have a way of packing it back up like we just don't do that really and and so just you know like you know it's just, it was a cultural thing it's just like we don't really we don't have some proposal um we just that's not really done so much and she meant in a nice way she was just like that's how we operate and I think for most of us what happens if we pull out the suitcase and throw all the stuff on the floor and say, "Okay, this is it. This is this is the domination doctrine," and and that's you know making my way through um, Stephen Newcomb's book, the, the doctrine of domination, the pagans in the promised land. This domination through line, you know, it's you know back to the Crusades, right? You know, back to the 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 the, the you know the, these papal bulls. And so, how does any one person individually? Like do anything about that, right? But I think in this moment, for me, it's a moment that is a reckoning, like a multiplicity of individual reckonings. Which isn't to say that we can in itself fix it, like you said, like have the wherewithal to whatever our fix would be, but to actually stand and look at it, like in a um in a thoughtful way, but like sort of a Clint, like a dispassionate, like let's just unpack this. What is this thing that we're living in? really and then find it and then find the other people who can also look at it and you know when you know I was I can't remember if I was reading a book or the movie like I am not your Negro talking about you know James Baldwin and that his perceived role in the civil rights movement was to witness like document and witness it wasn't his role was different than the roles of other people but it was this witnessing and so I feel like we are called or though not everyone not everyone is in the same space, but some of us are called to do this witnessing now of what it what it is, and then try to find hold space to find the way through. And I think part of it, the imperial construct, is I'm absolutely the wrong person to try to disentangle like co- settler colonialism, right? Like I, I mean, not that I can't participate, but it, it is it, uh, and in the whole reframing of. Identity politics has made it almost impossible to have a collective conversation too. I mean, and that's part of the whole NPR thing. Is like I'm not allowed. I'm supposed to sit in the corner, and so like my answer to this, and I found this in Philadelphia because we're a city of deep poverty, with all of these do-gooder NGO think tank people, philanthropies are doing things to the poor that are it's manufactured poverty, and they're Democrats, and they're many of whom are Black Democrats, right, and so. I can't just go sit in the corner. So what I'll do is I will go to Salt Lake City and tell the moms from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this is what's happening, we shouldn't do this. I'll go online and talk to people in Israel and say, don't build this thing. I'll talk to the people who I feel like I'm allowed to talk to and say, do we want to do this thing? Are we really, do we understand the history of where it came from and the power dynamic? Because I don't think it's going to go anywhere we really want it to go. And um, and not everyone can it's okay. I guess that's part of the human. Like we're all different. Um, My family doesn't see it. My family doesn't see the things I see. Um, Do they
2: actively disagree with you or do they just not see it when you see
1: it? I think it's too hard. And I will say I have the benefit of having like a lifestyle that I work part time, like my partner does the job that has the insurance, that does the things that is woven into this tapestry. So, for this person to get out of bed every morning and do that work that again allows me to sit here and have this discussion would be very, very emotionally difficult to actually know the things I know. And, you know, and we love each other and we care about each other, but he can't know those things because if he fundamentally did, we would have to change everything. And, and we're not there. We're not there together yet. Maybe someday we will be there together, but we're not. And and my my young adult child is, um, you know, in college and you don't wanna be your parents when you're in college. You wanna be everything that's not your parents, <laughs> you know? So it must be not great to have to be my kid and to be not me. Um, so so that's what I'm living with. But it's, it's a very, how would you be 20 and know that the end game of the social impact Philanthro-capitalism is transhumanism and living as a cartoon character in a military video game. Like, you don't want to know that when you're 20. That, like, closes all the boxes and says, well, you're trapped in a maze and I can't offer the way out. So they don't, you know, it's almost, it's not a kindness, I don't hide it, like, but you don't want to have your future foreclosed when you're 20, you know, so...
2: Say. So... Because in Jason's audience, I would guess a lot of them are not familiar with um, what you've been working. I mean, they're probably familiar with a lot of it, but not familiar with you specifically, perhaps. Um, you had uh, posted an excellent 10 things that um, you're going to talk about in an upcoming, I think, hour-long um, presentation and you're, yeah. you know, it's sort of like you're trying to get together your skyscraper elevator pitch to get this all across. Um, and so I've written each of these 10 things down and... Um, you're going to put me on the spot. What's that? You gonna <laughs> no, put, no, 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 Well, I was thinking, um, it, yeah, it's good. It's, it'll get you ready. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I was thinking... For each of them, I've written a little couple sentences about what, how I've understood them Ooh, so far, great. and um, and so I was going to read that and uh, and then you can respond and say either yep you got it or no totally don't have it or or expand.
1: Well, that uh, but, I like but, that. but I
2: like I just wanted to give you you know something that I had um, written. Uh, listening to on it it's sort of in the first times that I was listening to you and trying to make trying to make sense of this, you know, like on a on a jelly order. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, human capital bonds are financial instruments that generate profit through investment privatized tech driven social welfare systems uh data is essential performance on prescriptive pathway you know and of course i write all this down and it doesn't help me i'm not like i don't refer to notes but somehow i think that's going to help me anyway but um but as i listened to various interviews um and processed it i i've started to get it more my you know your background in art history you're taking uh pieces of the puzzle. You have an aptitude I'm guessing for that and an aptitude for, I'm terrible at history. I'm terrible at dates and names and things. I mean, that's your special happy place, I think. So, you know, whereas you, you can do all this and get it. You know, I'm a little bit like, I'm, I am a broad, I'm a broad looker and I can kind of take I think my ability is I, you know, I can take some Edith, something I've read in Edith Wharton and something that I've studied from John Stilgo and something that, you know, all these things. And it's like, yes, this all comes together. However, when it comes down to nitty gritty, I just like, blah, 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 you know, my, my eyes start to go wall-eyed and cross-eyed intermittently. And, but with repetition it helps. And so here's, the 10 items and my, where I've come to at this point. So the first thing you had on your list was something that is called, and yeah, I don't think any of these are your terms. You take these terms, you take your information um, from white papers, which are things that are printed, uh, things that are produced by corporations, individuals that um, that express their intent, what they're working on, you know, um, similar to what James Corbett does with his open source news, everything that he's taking, everything that you're taking are things that are, you're just reporting what is, what's there. And you're doing some tying together, you're connecting dots, but you're not really, putting together a narrative or you're not speculating other than right industry
1: says that they're doing i mean what industry says they plan to do yes and and so they go to all the conferences and they know all they know each other and they trade money and grants and seed funding to do these things and if you live in that world if you live in the davos world or the subdo you you know all of these things you may not put it in context but it's not, it's not hidden, they just figure no one who would question the, the ethics of that program would wander into their world and start to, un, to take it apart. And that's what I've done is to put a critical lens on, on the things that they just say they're doing. And for the most part, like academia, they're hopeless because they're just talking to each other and they never even bother, they read theory, but they don't actually like listen to what the World Bank says the plan is. If like, you just listen to what the World Bank says the plan is like then you would have more information to talk about that's actionable, but you don't, you just step to like refer to three or four other academics, you know, that to establish your place in the pecking order and then put a little bit of stuff in, but no one wades in to look at the nitty gritty of what they're actually doing. So they get away with it. Corporate industry talks to itself. Academics talk to itself. Regular people are busy living their lives and none of it connects. So I just try to connect it. And there,
2: there you are. There. <laughs> you are. <clears throat> so that's all good. And I, I'd like to maybe we'll come back to academia because that's a special little <laughs> kernel between my teeth. But um, so, all right, here's um, <clears throat> the first thing on your list is Internet of Bodies. And what I've written down is digitizing real people in the real world with embedded sensors, facilitating surveillance and the recording of digital information, i.e. data. So that's what, you know, that's what I have gleaned. Not looking from, you know, just reading Internet of Bodies, right? What have I learned from Allison about that? So just sensors that could be either embedded in your body or sensors um, that are giving feedback in the environment because you're doing QR code or something like that. Right. And so so is, there, uh, is that right on? Is there a more succinct, clear way?
1: No, that, that sounds it? great. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that, yeah, but it's surveillance and it's through the sensor networks, both sensors that are connected to you and your identity, as well as how that interfaces with the physical world. That's great. All
2: right, <clears throat> then augmented reality, um, the world of virtual reality, virtual reality goggles, uh, which I think we've all known for a long time, because that has been in our collective cultural consciousness for quite a while, as entertainment, at least. Um, haptic suits, which you introduced me to, which are suits that when you move, you're moving a robot remotely across the world or in yeah. the next room. Um, and holoportation technology, which I just read about in um, one of the recent links, I, I think it might have been one of your um, one of your followers put something okay. to holoportation technology, which is um, which is uh, by using certain cameras um, and then certain projectors, certain cameras on somebody in one space and a projector in a room in another space you could have you know somebody sitting at a table and then sitting next to them could be a holographic you know sort of like a ghost looking representation of somebody else you know they had the example of doing a um chinese ink painting lesson you know so you have the person who's real and the um
1: the teacher who's at a distance so Anything to add to augmented reality? So, I would say the one piece on augmented reality um, that I would add in is that the sensor networks, so it's, it's layers of information too on the physical environment. So, if you imagine like a GIS system, like layers of maps and data, you know, when you're doing GIS, like you could do, you know, population or temperature or different and layers, and you can choose like how deep the layers go. That, that the sensor network has access to layered information, but not everyone has all the access. So if you imagine, like, uh, they're permissioned, right? Like, sometimes you're in software and they say, you don't have permission to access this part of the program or access this link. Increasingly, in augmented reality, there will be, um, uh, situations where your interface with that reality is not the same as another individual based on your status per se, if that makes sense.
2: And they, that makes perfect sense. I, I was not um aware of that. So you're seeing like you're on the um you're on the QE two, but you can only access certain decks, right? Yeah. Whereas everybody, the people on the top can access all the decks and all the food and everything like that. So it's just translated down.
1: I mean, and the other thing is, is that these, um, it's almost like regulating your, this is, I can't, like it'll come later in blockchain. But that that there are these smart contracts where the sensors are sort of like gatekeepers on what you can and cannot do in the physical environment, both even in your home, um, outside in the world and they're mediated by things like QR codes or what the sensors say. It's almost like a game of mother, may I, a little bit. And so depending on your status, your digital status, there are things, again, it's not just access to information, but it's actually how you physically participate in the world may be constrained. And that some of that is also tied in with um, like geolocation data. So the, you know, uh, you know every point in the landscape you know has its own geo coordinates right and they they create almost like digital fences which initially were just used for marketing purposes like you'd walk into some place i who would even know that they would put that on your phone like you walk in in front of a store and they say oh here's a coupon come in for $2 off your burger or something like that it's it was geo fencing was marketing but it's going to be increasingly not about just marketing it's about controlling behaviors so that's the other piece of the augmented reality. It is a um, engaging in your world on a contractual basis in a moment-by-moment scenario, which is kind of crazy, but I think that's why the contract lawyers and the accountants are so central to what is un- unrolling with this new world that they're building. I have to
2: let my dog in or she's yeah. gonna bark at the door, but I have something to add to that. All right, come on in, <laughs> so down um so uh, you and that's both things so you're you're given access according to what you've earned either you know because you've earned the right to do something or you're prevented uh, prevented access either because you're deemed a threat or you haven't earned that or you haven't you're, like, it's whatever. almost
1: like a game right like the, right. if you can't do certain things in a video game unless you've gotten to a certain level
2: yeah the gamification is a huge part of it and um Yeah, I want to talk about Minecraft at some point, but it will confuse things here, so I'll go on to the next. Uh, Outcomes-based government contracts, and this I I had to look up, but so as I understand it, opportunities for private corporations and investors to make money by investing in and managing social issues. For instance, a private corporation opens a preschool. The corporation must prove through data that the kids have reached predetermined goals by the end of the school year in order for the corporation to get paid.
1: Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, and so when I first got into this, they had certain names for them. Uh, the structures were called social impact bonds, which are not actually technically bonds. Um, and then those were not scalable. And then they became something, they started to use pay for success finance. Um, but fundamentally it is a pay for performance contract that goes back, you know, as I've mentioned in some other interviews to the mid nineties, but they didn't have the technology to do the verification and this um, like identify success as metrics, right? That we've shifted with cloud-based computing into translating sort of the chaos, the organic nature of life and whatever into these rubrics, into these measures as as the world has become increasingly datafied. And so now the governments can set very um, uh, particular performance metrics. And we've seen that like any parents in the school, you know, public schools knows that the schools run on data now. That's all data analytics as if education is accurately represented by, you know, math scores or, you know, now everything is going to be measured. Your art rubrics, I mean, everything is going to come down to having these data points and it's all to run, run the contract. So Yeah, so that's um, the thing I would emphasize is that um, as an investment opportunity, these people game the system. They're always gaming the system. And so they decide on terms of a contract that work for the investor and that are narrow and often do not meaningfully resolve the problem or provide material benefit to the people being serviced. And that's an important clarification. Some people, especially on the like libertarian side, might say like, hey, this is great because the government is, is doing a bad job and they're messing everything up and I wanna know that I'm getting my money's worth. But inherent in this is that Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase are in this game to make more money and get more control, not to actually make life better for children and give them more job opportunities. Well,
2: they are legally bound as corporations to um, behave in the interest of their stockholders right now
1: stakeholders or is so that? Well so now we've shifted to stakeholder capitalism. So that's the whole ESG right. investing. So we're we're pivoting slowly. They're doing the, like, "Oh, you're right, that was terrible. We're moving into this new we're going to manage populations as human capital assets." So now we'll do the stakeholder version. So wait,
2: and are they that but for? that's that's just a way of saying uh, no, that's ridiculous. So they're saying that when we make money, it means we have a good outcome, rather than we are we are we are forcing quote unquote good outcomes in order to make money, right? That just sounds to me like a way to pretend that it's not about money.
1: They're you know? building a game that lets them take more money and power. Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right. So um, and then right right below that you had social impact in, investing. Um, and so to separate from outcomes-based government contracts, I've written uh oh, this and this was a great um great thing that uh, Eduardo um where is he now? Eduardo Eduardo Abarca said, where is this? He had a fantastic um fantastic thing that he here we go, it's here. Uh I've lost it somewhere in my notes. but he, he had said that it is um, globalized poverty management. Um, but it's cause sort of couched your, your social impact investing is actual, is actually globalized poverty, poverty management. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's a really nice term to have that resonate for me. You know, that's uh it, because it puts it frames it in a managerial way, which I think is what it's is what it's all about. Social yeah. impact investing, you know, that's like that's just like has like if you could have euphemisms spray euphemism spray. <laughs> euphemism spray. Double,
1: yeah. <laughs> anyway, anything more to add to social impact? Investing? I would just say whenever people see impact they should understand that that means data. And whenever they see data, that is essentially a stand in for digital surveillance. So when you're talking about social impact, it means that you now, under the guise of philanthropy, um, and accountability, have free reign to conduct digital surveillance of vulnerable populations. And that's, and, and then the other piece is when we talk about global is that a lot of these programs with the wearable technology and the digital currency and the data, um, impact verification were piloted through global humanitarian aid systems. And so they're, they, they, they're carried out under the guise of aid, especially they use, um, refuge, like displaced people, refugees, the Syrian refugee population has been a huge test bed for a lot of these. And then it boomerangs back into like domestic, um, low income populations, you know, in the global north. So it's this cycle. It's the, the proof of pilot. And then it, and then it comes back. And I've said, I, I have a piece where I talk about. There's a Twilight Zone episode where the, the UFO comes in, and um, the guy comes with a book, and they're like, "We're so afraid." He's like, "No, no, it's it's all good. Here's here we have a book. We come in peace." And so there's this woman, and she, you know, hurriedly trying to figure out how to translate this book, and they they got the 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 front cover, and it said to serve man, and he said, "Oh, see, he was telling the truth just serve man." And so they all like pile up with these people, and eventually her significant other is ready to get on the spaceship. And she runs out on the tarmac and she's like figured out the rest of the book. She's broken the code. And she goes, wait, wait, it's a cookbook. You know, it's a cookbook. And so that is, I mean, to serve man is a cookbook. And and if you create a, a profitable enterprise in global poverty management, the logic of the market dictates you will simply grow poverty. There is no logical incentive if people are making a fair rate of return on poverty management that they will stop that market. They might manage it or they may ameliorate it somewhat, but they will have every incentive to continue to expand the nature, the levels of poverty around the world. Yeah,
2: and and to this, I would highly recommend um, people to look at your Catherine Austin Fitz interview because I think you had, uh, you really went into pulling apart and especially because Catherine Austin Fitz has a very... Um, uh, deep government background herself, was she, she was HUD, was she, um, and so she has a real understanding of the ways that um, these things are, uh, these, these frameworks are embedded and sustained and, um, and are not, you know, that, that the whole, it is perpetuation. It's perpetuation of poverty. She was saying that You know, we could we can end poverty by just not, um, you know, not doing what is done now, and not not to say, you know, just. I mean, I'm sure it's very complicated, but she's she's saying there are ways to end poverty, but they have nothing to do with the poverty management that's happening now. All that is doing is sustaining it and making a great amount of money. You know, ten times as much money as uh, it's just, it's a game, it's a whole game. It's and they,
1: they're laying out the terms of this new game and people don't know they're in a game and they don't, most people, even if they know in the game, they, they don't know what the rules are, who the players are, what's driving them. Mm. And, and our housing authority, the Philadelphia Housing Authority is incredibly crooked and has been forever. Um, we have a 10 year waiting list for affordable housing um, most of the housing they let deteriorate. Now they're flipping it to developers. And you know, one of the key things that people have to understand is if you control people's basic needs, right? You control their shelter and you control their food access um, and you control their mobility. That, mm-hmm. that is a tremendous amount of power. And shelter is a huge piece. The real estate markets are enormous and the wealth is it's concentrated, that power. So in the aftermath of the last global crisis, which teed all of this up, if people understand it, teed all of this up, was that people lost their homes. And the entity that scooped up and became the largest private rental homeowner in the country is Blackstone, right? That's Stephen Schwartzman, who is a predatory, like Blackstone is a predatory landlord and and has increasingly automated services. I strongly feel that the plan is to create housing vouchers that will then run through these private rental agreements that will become social impact housing and that they will smart up the housing, they will frame it as a workforce development, the Habitat for Humanity and LEED certified and they will go and they will repackage all of these, you know, housing that need upgrades and they'll get their Alexa and they'll get their smart TV and they'll get their ring doorbell and they'll get, you know, their smart appliances. And then people will be only allowed to live there conditionally. And that the United Nations, I can't, it was their division around human rights, like wrote Schwartzman a letter saying, here, we're calling you out for being such a predatory landlord. Um, but then at the end, it was sort of like, wink, wink, maybe you could get into affordable housing, and that would make it okay. Right. And so all of this is being set up, like they know what the game is. And there's just these bits and pieces, every piece is slid into place. And for the most part, there are probably well-intentioned people who do are disinclined to know more, like who are not the Catherine Austin Fitz people who are managing these programs with the blinkers on and they don't know how their piece fits into the other piece. But sooner or later, we're going to have all of these poor people being set up to do with, the, with you know, and the unions will be on it because the trades will retrain people for smart housing and we'll all do it for Blackstone so that they can... You know, and and I'm, I'm pretty sure Blackstone is the one that, that bought out Ancestry.com and your DNA. So like your, maybe your housing stock will be dependent on like your DNA genomic profile. Um, I mean, it does feel a bit like a sci-fi episode, but how would it not happen unless we're willing to say um, we should not allow it to happen? And, you know, we're, we're living in this moment increasingly today. I was just like the eugenics aspect. You know, I was looking in some people who are involved with Julian Huxley and UNESCO and the Fabians and it's it's a class structure too like we're going to breed you know we're going to manage the breeding of the poor the behaviors of the poor for their own good and that's where I think the whole thing is falling apart with the liberals and like the ideological boxes because Once you layer that in, once you know the history of Malthusian, eugenics, Fabian stuff, a lot of the government, and then you know that your government is now Google and Goldman Sachs and Blackstone, and they're not accountable to the people. Then you have to re-figure out another way of being, I think. Or you can just stay listening to NPR, you know? I mean, and there's a lot of people who just are sticking with the NPR. I mean, once I was doing my schoolwork, Every single person funding NPR was all the people I was funding who were planning all the terrible things for schools. And the only, and for a while I only listened to them to get good Intel on what was coming. And then eventually I just cut it out altogether.
2: to go through this list but i'm yeah. i feel i'm feeling like there's an opportunity here to do um actually is eugenics let's let's move to eugenics and biotech because you know you mentioned eugenics and the fabians and all that so it's on your list and <laughs> i'm gonna stop here <laughs> stop. now anyway and i jason uh you know obviously please jump in at any moment you feel inclined. All right. So uh, let me say so eugenics and biotech. Um, the idea which apparently arose in the USA, Margaret Sanger and others, in which the Nazis ran with uh, before and during World War II, that population should be engineered to favor the best and brightest and called of the imperfect, deficient, and degenerate. Many people today are concerned uh, that biotech is being utilized to achieve a eugenicist agenda by culling portions of the population or simply trying to kill off or sterilize a large proportion of the whole population. So this is like, this is the water where, you know, we've kind of been, you know, I'm thinking of the various people who I'm going to give this podcast link to that probably up until now are listening and think "Oh, okay that's interesting allison is talking about interesting things and i should look into those connections you know and they're waiting in the shallow water and all of a sudden their floor splash totally over their head (whistles) gotta get out but here here we are and um i think that this is uh i think this is central and essential and this is where this is where i think i and so all right if i can if i can explain a little bit where i come from in terms of why this does not seem outlandish to me from um my own background. And, and as I say, I think the eugenics is a, uh, eugenics is a big part of it. And I want to read, I want to read a little uh, part of, um, part of a letter. So this is from 1934, and this was written by my great-grandfather. So the, um, I have, pretty long leaps backwards in terms of I'm like the mom was the last kid born to her mother when she was 40. She had me after other kids and she was 42, you know, and then before that. So I reach to people who I call my grandparents and great grandparents are into the 1800s, wow. which is, which is pretty, um, gives me, uh, a feeling of, it gives the past a feeling of reality to me because, um, you know, my grandmother lived, um, till she was 102. So, you know, I talked to her and lived with her and she was born in 1890. And so that's just normal to me. Realizing that the past is real and not just on film is normal to me, which I, you know, anyway, so Uh, So this is a letter from our, from my great-grandfather, and um, he, he was an, he was an artist, but also he was very interested in medicine, so he was kind of a self-taught surgeon and doctor, which I guess you could do back then. He also um, kind of forced my grandmother at age... 16 or 17 to enroll in medical school at, um, Columbia, not Columbia, Cornell. And so I, back then you just went in directly, mm-hmm. you know, and this is what a 16 or 17 year old woman in 1907 in oh, wow. medical school. And she didn't like, she didn't want to be there. She's like, she got out and like that wasn't her path, but he was an interesting, guy and an artist and so he eventually was kind of he was also a philanderer and forced out of the family when he was raising a family with the neighbor and um so set off for the southern lands at some point and then this is a letter that he's writing back to his cousin he says in buenaventura i signed as physician and surgeon with a geological expedition sent out by an Oklahoma dependencia of the Standard Oil Company. right, 1934. The program was to go up the Magdalena River about 150 miles of its headwaters and then inland. Something easier said than done was one of those well-paid jobs with the inconvenience that sometimes you don't come back to collect. However, in this game, first ethics are never to find fault. I knew the character of the country and the tribes that inhabit it. In December 1932, I crossed the Ecuadorian border to Pasco and got as far north as the Magdalena tributaries. The expedition members were picked. One of the geologists was a German professor. We became great chums. The crowd was too healthy to need a doctor. I did the bartering for pack animals, guides, grub, and forage with the Indians. Professionally, I had lots to do. as a grub hunter, I pulled down several honorable mentions. Uh, in my particular case, oh, that's more family stuff. The Magdalena River trip was trying. Days of hot tropical sun and nights cloudy with myriads of insects we kept under the nets, sleepless due to the bedlam of noises made by the pests who followed the launch, attracted by the light of the fires aboard. Um let me drink. Uh, the maps which indicate the inland course and the region to be studied are wonderful airplane photos. Our work was a success. We returned to Bogota with va- valuable data, which was turned over to the oil giant, adding another thread to the web, which he is slowly spreading over the South American continent. And so I read this, you know, okay, 1934. And he was born. He was... Um, He was uh, 63 years old when he wrote that letter. letter. And so he traveled there when he was about 61, he he did this journey, Um, 1934. And so he was born in 1871 in New York when it was um, horses and buggies, right? Horses and buggies, right before they started putting in even trolley lines uh, fairly well before the automobile became um, common. There were probably about five or six story buildings b- before any skyscrapers. Um, and so he is coming of age at a time when all of this is building up and everything that goes is... is. Uh, Weaving that web, and then he he is helping to weave this web for, for Rockefeller, right? But at the same time, he has a talent with the Indians, you know, and is, so he must have some kind of, and he's there in nature and communicating. He must be able to speak languages. Yet at the same time, He's not what is it what is it there? What is it with him that is not not having a little alarm bell when he's integrated into that natural life, and yet going guided by, essentially, what was then drone photographs, airplane photographs. To participate in the extractive economy and to also weave a web of control over the natural environment and so this is coming from an artist, somebody who you know is out with his paints and and so what it makes me it makes me think. That there must be and and at that time when these things were really developing and emerging, a real co- complacency or confidence in the idea that this modern uh, course is is true and good and worth putting energy into to make happen that this is that you know it's a, maybe there's a little discomfort in his words about you know the oil giant weaving his web but he's still working for him he's yeah. still weaving that web with him and so how i think this is connected with eugenics is there has to be there has to be underlying this, I think, a belief that there are either certain types of people who are less than, I don't know if it's less than human, but less than modern human, less than something that's a higher level, a lower level of human, right? And these lower levels of humans can be can be used, can be um, used or um, because eventually we're going to modernize around them and they will all become what we are, which is the better thing, which is the higher thing, which is the more advanced thing. You know, just as these skyscrapers are going up and everything is connecting, this is part of our aspirational endeavor as human beings and i think that that must be what's guided this you know so we, we think of eugenics as being something um you know when we think of nazis and eugenics or eugenics tied to
1: um uh uh I mean what's it was like Long Island, right? Cold what, Spring Harbor that? Labs. Cold Spring Harbor Labs on Long Island. I mean, that's a lot of where it came out of. And they're so oh, interesting.
2: I don't know that really yeah. yeah. I grew up on Long Island myself. Yeah, Cold
1: Spring Harbor, yeah.
2: Doesn't surprise me. A lot of <laughs> there's a lot comes out of Long Island. <laughs> but um so it's just it seems that it is connected, you know, so there's kinda like the bad eugenicists who are don't like black people and think they're less than and then the bad eugenicists who don't like Jewish people and think they're less than. But then there are the eugenicists that are or the eugenicist instinct within those who just think that they are smart, that they are evolved. Yeah, that's a big word you hear a lot, evolve and oh evolve and you know
1: NPR it's the meritocracy, right? What's that? There's so much of the meritocracy. Meritocracy. Oh, if you've you know run the gauntlet and you've got the credentials, then you're worthy and you are good. Yeah. And not so much of what's built into our culture.
2: And also, I would say also like an NPR kind of mentality of being more evolved as a caring, enlightened human. You know, it's there is a there is a similarity in all of this that people don't want to think of themselves as eugenicists or you know having that mind, but I think it's prevalent, pervasive, everywhere, and I think it's been uh, it's been there for a very long time. And <clears throat> I am suggesting that this is perhaps one of the things at the heart of this issue. And this is something that, um, you know, Jason has talked and written a lot about given his own family's connection with Fabian, the Fabian society, which I don't have as much of a knowledge about because that's all England stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm a Long Island gal. So, but, um, it's, uh, I, I think that there's, I think that there's something to being able to understand what, what the inclination is to feel like one person is better, more human than another person or a higher type of human than another person. And then to use that to understand what might drive people to advance their idea of what where humanity should go, which paradoxically, seems to be biotechnology and transhumanism, transhumanism right? yeah. which, which will be, be the extinction of humanity you know Natural, yeah in general but uh i
1: think so much of it like it goes back to the enlightenment i mean really it's 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 a power dynamic right it's man over nature not man in relation it's part of a web of relationship it's it's and it's it extends to this idea of engineering right that we are going to engineer to some particular end of some model that we've deemed the better model and that is it's systems engineering it's electrical engineering it's now and it's this extension of biotech but it is a like a hierarchical thing right and and to me that's why I feel like looking at the work of like a Sylvia Federici or someone who's more like eco-feminist because I do think that part of that hierarchical and control of reproduction, control of systems, like taking it out of natural, you know, the chaos of nature, what might happen and and putting it into a very organized, structured uh, reproductive process um, is sort of a, there's, there's a, you know, matriarchy, patriarchy, you know, dynamic going on in that as well. And that power dynamic. And yeah, I mean, literally the transhumanist future that they're imagining is both that our bodies will be colonized through technology you know at a scale that we can't even see unless you have an electron microscope right at the nanotech level but then the sensor technology will replicate us in the simulation so there's both the colonization of our physical selves and then the mirroring into a virtual world so what does what does an a eugenics agenda look like if you know a, this past history might have been framed as that we want um people who are you know strong and support you know uh, an industrial labor process or you know like what does that managing breeding humanity for an industrial purpose what does that look like in a um in a world where they really want us in a simulation and to me i feel like that um population level bioengineering will actually incentivize having a chronic illness framework so that we don't actually that that shedding our physical body will be an imperative or an aspiration, ultimately, that the physical body becomes an impediment and that the eugenics agenda will advance that aspect of the program.
2: Jason, so, oh yeah, go ahead, finish.
1: No, that's, I think that's pretty much.
2: Jason, I see you nodding a lot. Can I, do you wish to?
0: Well, uh, I'm nodding in order not to have to speak partly, so you can see, yeah. yeah, okay, I'm following along very easily. Of course, there's lots coming up in terms of thoughts, uh, whether, I, whether I can make them coherent is, is another question, but I was nodding a lot at the last part there because what Alison was zeroing in on is what I have called the disembodiment agenda, and, and as Kate was describing her approach, I tend to be pulling things together. I mean, I do deal with a lot of names and dates and stuff, but I tend to forget them, and I'm just trying to pull things together to get a, a unified conspiracy theory, essentially. Well, I think conspiracy is the wrong word, cause I think but anyway, what what most people would think of a conspiracy. Um, and that's it for me. It's a disembodiment agenda. And I think that who's zeroing in on this in the relation with eugenics, as I see it, eugenics is it's a literalization of something, but it's also like a metaphor for any kind of technological interference with biology, which itself is, um, it's the, it's the most literal and the most obvious and the kind of culmination of what Kate was talking about of the general, the imposition, the drive to impose our will on nature that it, so eugenics yeah it it has the specific meaning which is in terms of culling culling the race and you know getting rid of the weak and sort of uh, artificial selection process through technology but it's i would say that eugenics more broadly described is just any kind of interference with the biology of of the species, and that, as kate was saying that that 's a very broad spectrum I mean that would include uh, any kind of modern medicine, essentially, like one could really incorporate modern medicine into eugenics in terms because it 's all interfering with the natural but, well i 'm not a Darwinian, but so far as there 's some merit in natural selection, I think there 's some meaning in that it 's a bit tautological, but anyway. Uh, Everything we do is, go- is is interfering to some degree, um, and yeah. So Eugenics has been framed in this particular way that has the correlation with the Nazis, or if you dig a bit deeper with the Fagans, and that's much closer to the truth. Um, so yeah, the f- the final outcome would be let's get rid of the body entirely, which seems to conform with with Alison's you know, bullet point. Her, her, her menu for dystopia, uh, not it's her menu, but anyway, her translation of the of the corporate menu. Uh, the last thing I, I want to throw in there before I, before I go quiet again is, is a personal point, which is that my family, yeah, my my father's side, my fam- my grandfather was a Fabian, which means back then in, in the 30s, 40s, he, he was a eugenicist. Uh, <clears throat> my father didn't really adopt it, but he was a a socialist and a liberal and a lot of the values he did adopt and they were certainly elitist but they were also alcoholics and so very quite dysfunctional at an ordinary human level and um quite disembodied and and i think that that's yes that's my personal experience so it's important to bring that in here for all of us, I think, but I also think it, it's a clue to something that these people who seem to be philanthropists and that they really believe that they're doing good, which is my grandfather uh, and the people he associated with Bertrand Russell and J.B Priestley uh, Richard Ackland and uh, anyway those those early Fabians or, or you know, close to Fabian's affiliated. Um, that they um in my in the case of my family anyway that they were really acting unconsciously they're really driven by unconscious traumas and they were really just dissociated from reality for an alcoholic you're drunk half the time and you're trying to get laid the rest of the time because they were kind of sexually obsessed my family as well um you're just not really connected to your body and you're not connected to reality and so I think there's a huge displacement activity, dissociation. Oh, I can save the planet, or I can reform society, and uh, it's dissociated from reality. But it's also dissociated from the people that you're supposedly trying to help. I mean, my my family ethics, there was the socialist ethics they had, was supposedly about helping the margin marginal people and the disenfranchised and the poor and the, and so on but they weren't my family weren't really interested in those people so it it was a bit it was a bid for power it was an unconscious bid power due to this you know sexual uh, emotional dysfunction that then disguised itself as a philanthropic drive and and so i think i think that that's the that's part of the psychology that's underneath that and i think it's it's helpful to include it in there to try and Make sense of what Kate was wrestling with, and <clears throat> there is one more thing after I'll say, so as long as I've got the mic, which is I have that. I don't know about Alison, but I think with Kate and I, a lot of what's going on here today is that we're wrestling with our ancestral um, legacy. That we, we've carried a kind of ancestral drive to be like this, and we don't want to continue it. And so we're trying to identify and resolve a kind of pathogen in ourselves and, and to me that's where the work is that's that's where change is going to happen those of us who have been comp- we're all complicit but those of us have been more complicit like my family were social engineers they were into geopolitics and i if i had if i had taken the blue pill or whatever if i'd fit the bill I, I would have continued that tradition so for those of us who are much more closely aligned with the power to really see the nature of the pathology the pathogen and and acknowledge it, and then up to it, and confess it. In a certain sense, atone for it. I think that that what Alice was talking about. We're we're ones who can really witness it much more clearly, uh, and and really, there's an, an amendment that can be made. That can only be made by those who are actually really uh, responsible. I think, and of course, as we know that the real game players, they're not they're not going to repent. I mean there's no evidence that they're going to turn over newly. so we're somehow in this you know in between era where there is the potential we're not identified with the herd that's being herded and we're disidentifying from the elite that's doing the herding i think that's where there's the potential for, for some sort of resolution okay dan thanks for letting me speak
1: can i just uh, chime in just one i'll just say one thing too so the other piece of this is You know, part of the reason that I I can work part-time is like we have like a a bit of padding that's inherited, but my husband's grandfather was the head of tax, the tax department of Standard Oil in the 30s, (laughs) right? (laughs) So maybe we're more connected than you know, right? And so it is, it's like this reckoning, you don't, you know, I didn't know about Rockefeller Medicine. I didn't know about it. I mean, you know, I have a sense of the oil, but not the tentacles, not the... I'm so late to this game, you know, because you're not really meant to peel it back. So yeah, I guess we're all grappling with it in some way.
2: Um and again talking about Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, she she had some a very thing a very interesting thing to say about um why she said that she 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 thinks that there's something to do with um, that getting people to define, to making the definition of what it is to be human ungrounded in actual, you know, biology or other quote unquote reality type factors as it has been historically, uncoupling it from that Will facilitate um, having being able to define or blur the distinctions between artificial intelligence slash robots and humans. So if you start to, to pull apart what it is to be human by legally and this is all a matter of law, um, <clears throat> by you know on the paper that that can considerably um, speed up the, um, the adoption of uh, artificial intelligence, because otherwise the legal issues, she said, would take just years and years to iron out in terms of what are the rules about robots? Well, they're just gonna be the rules for humans because there's really no difference. And so making identity something that is more um, a matter of choice rather than something grounded in biology, makes it easier to equate a synthetic actor to a carbon-based actor. Did that sound reasonable, Allison?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the other piece of this is not just the robots, but also the avatars. And you had mentioned like holoport or hologram types of things, because my analysis is that the virtual world building is Both it's an imperial project because all of the cloud is a, it's a, it's a military based technology, even though it might seem, you know, fun and enjoyable. It's, it's a militarized space. And this next phase of globalized labor, the next, the globalization 4.0 is through the remote robotics, but also through, um, screen based labor. But now when you're talking about holograms, it could be that your avatar, goes off and teaches an art lesson, right? That is potentially disconnected from your consciousness, you know? And so all of this biometric authentication that we're talking about, that is going to be embedded in the digital identities with biometrics, the shift beyond your retinal scans, your thumb prints, you know, um, that aspect is they're moving to behavioral biometrics and for this telepresence, globalized labor stuff to happen and for payment systems to happen, they need to know that that hologram sitting next to you doing the art lesson is actually authori- an authorized actor on your behalf. That, that that hologram can engage in contractual agreements. If you you know contracted with them for six art lessons that you're getting the authentic hologram, right? And that that hologram is getting paid the agreed upon rate. And all of this is happening at scale through these automated blockchain contracts. And so the 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 legal structure, I think that that was something that was a very good point of hers, is that if if the legal community globally had to create an entirely separate paradigm for how it treated um, from a legal standpoint and a contractual standpoint, uh, holograms and avatars and cyborgs or something aside from just regular human people who are in material space. It would be incredibly complicated and take forever. And they want this to happen quickly and seamlessly. And so that there is going to be this push, I think, to m- merge them all together. And that, um, you know, I guess that's just what I wanted to, to mention is that, that it is tied to, um, globalized labor systems, um, in, in my, in my, that it, it's not simply about, and then the other piece of the, the cap, the, the global economic beyond the labor is that you're, Uh, relation as a consumer and their ability to um, extract data from you in a virtual world is that it enhances split personalities and split identities. So if you imagine that you could consume digital items, acquire and consume in virtual, in the metaverse, and that you could actually represent, be represented by three or four different versions of you, Right. Like this is the, this is the you, the face I put on when I go to work. This is the face I put on when I'm at the kids ball game. This is the face I put on in my bedroom. Like these are all the different fragments of you. They can be peeled back and then commodified individually as this exponential like growth paradigm in a metaverse. And it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to think, but that is all the stuff that's going to be tracked on blockchain is this hyper reality. Um, there's the piece that lays on the material world, which is the augmented reality, but then there's the metaverse, which is the inversion of it into a a militarized digital space. So, you know, I think some of the identity politics is going to feed this fragmentation. And then again, it kind of goes back to, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, uh, what is the, the psychiatric in the UK, the 1930s? Tavistock? oh i just count tavistock yeah like this idea of psychological manipulation for systems of power to manage people within those systems so if the new system says our our way of making money and extracting profit and control mechanisms is to fragment you as avatars the identity politic piece whether that however that manifests Feeds into this new paradigm that you can be split and that each line of you can be commodified. Then in that space, so
0: All right. it's very uh, MK Ultra, isn't it? The creation of yeah. alters and then the alters are assigned different functions. And I mean, the MK Ultra is problematic because it's been yeah. it's been fictionalized and we have this you know dumbed down version of it. But uh, it's, it's it's certainly ringing bells here.
2: Well, I, and and so I'm I'm devils advocating for what I imagine um, some people that I would be hoping would be listening to this um, at this point they would think yeah okay, this that's Allison's just talking about like a Neil Stevenson book or Allison's just coming up with some crazy scenario what um you know she's just kind of taken all right so here would be here would be the idea. Yeah, you've taken the uh, some um, uh, marketing material about companies and what they want to do with their technology, and you are creating a um, creating a doomsday narrative from it. So, I I would like to hear you talk about whether you know is that a is that a reasonable challenge to what you're talking about? Or do you, do you have other reasons to think that, you know, when you talk about independent virtual actors in a virtual space, you know, having their own commerce and, you know, being a part of you, but it's, you know, there's you in the real world and then you in the real world being in the virtual world, but then there are this sliced off, you know, kind of AI uh, Allison bots or whatever, virtual Allison bots, you know, walking around whatever version of Minecraft is in place at that time. Why is it not science fiction, Allison? This is crazy talk. (laughs)
0: The end of the first part of this conversation between Kate Ledygar, Arsyn McDowell and myself. The next part will be up a few days from now. There's going to be a live Liminalist meeting on this coming Saturday the 5th of June, probably around 6pm UK time, noon Eastern time and I haven't firm that up but keep an eye on the blog for more details about that. It's open to all who meet the requirements of uh, sobriety and the focus will be simply on meeting me if you haven't already and uh, interactive exploratory conversations.